I am, I'm hoping, a walking inspiration for people who are not a writer of any description who would like to be a writer because I was the absolute polar opposite of a writer, I What guess. is the polar opposite of um, a writer? Well, I actually, I don't know. I, I, that's a really good question. Let's rephrase that. I was not in a position in my life that anybody would have looked at me and thought, oh, I bet she's going to go off and write a novel. Hello, I'm Laura Shavin and this is The Offcut Straw, the show that looks inside a writer's bottom drawer to find the bits of work they never finished, had rejected or couldn't quite find a home for. We bring them to life, hear the stories behind them and learn how these random pieces of creativity paved the way to subsequent success. My guest this week is best-selling novelist Lisa Jewell. Lisa's first book, Ralph's Party, was published in 1999 and was an instant hit, becoming the best-selling debut novel for that year. Since then, she's written another 19 books from the chick-lit novels of the 90s and noughties like 30 Nothing and One Hit Wonder, to more family-themed novels like After the Party, The House We Grew Up In. And more recently, she seems to have found a home in the world of psychological thrillers with books like Then She Was Gone, Watching You and The Night She Disappeared, which came out this summer and instantly topped the bestseller charts. I really enjoyed my chat with Lisa. She was impressively honest and unpretentious about her talents and career. Her pragmatic, no-nonsense approach seems almost surprising, considering the success she's had in all her different genres. Anyway, so this is our conversation, which took place a few months ago, just as the summer holidays were coming to an end. Where are you in your work cycle? Are you in the middle of anything or did you clear the decks before your holidays? Um, I have got into the into the habit since having small children of stopping work for the summer holidays. And now I don't have small children anymore, but I do still stop work for the summer holidays. But it actually does work for me because it's nice for me to have that space. And so I'm now at that point where I'm having to gear up to get back into it, which is it hasn't quite happened yet, but I'm hoping it will happen in the next few days. I'll get back to work. But had you finished a project and now you're ready to start a new one? Or are you oh, actually... no. Sorry, no. What I mean is I stop writing the novel that I'm writing for the summer holidays and then come back to it after the summer holidays. <laughs> so I have, I, I, have half, I have half a novel. Ah. So my, my, my writing cycle is January to December. So it's really... Nice and easy to remember what I'm supposed to be doing at any given point. Um, <laughs> Hold on, so, so let me get to it. You have a cycle per book. So you start writing it in January, you have it finished by December. Is that right? Each book? Correct. Correct. Oh, yes. Yes. That's impressive. It's really not. People say this to me all the time, but I have to remind them that this is my job and I don't do anything else. I literally have nothing else to do all year. <laughs> I don't even have to look after children very much anymore because they're big teenagers. So I, this is my job. And, and it only takes me three hours a day. I mean, it's not much of a job, really. So, yes, it's, it's not such an achievement after all. <laughs> well, you say that, but I mean, presumably you have to come up with an idea. On January the 1st, do you know what the book is you're going to be writing? Or is that when you start with your, right, now I must decide on the characters or the plot on January the 1st? Right. Well, on January the 1st, I am still probably in the throes of liaising with my editor about what needs to be done to the book that I delivered in December. And then I'll probably spend the whole of January editing the book that I delivered in December, probably going into February quite often as well. So it's it's generally, it's probably mid-Feb, early March, when I actually sit down and type chapter one mm-hmm. um, um, with a nice blank screen in front of me. And at that point, yes, I do know what chapter one will be. Right. When did you work that out? Oh, at some point in the shower or walking down the street or at some point, it's, it's something that I describe as a golden egg. And it happens to me once a year. It's like I ovulate once a year um, and this golden egg arrives and I just know it and I feel it. And I just think you're my idea. Here you are. You've arrived. And I can't write you yet because I'm in the middle of writing another book. But you just sit there and I'll think about you from time to time. And hopefully by the time I start that new document uh, in February or March next year, I'll have more of an idea of what you mean and what what else I need to do to bring you into into fruition. So, yes, that's how it happens. It's just and, and the golden egg is usually the tiniest 
tiniest, tiniest little thing as well. It's not usually a huge, big sort of grand idea or high concept thing. It's just a person I've seen or a feeling I've had that I want to explore somehow. Could you, for example, has it ever happened that you've had more than one golden egg in a year? No. And and in fact, if I did get another golden egg, I would find a way to make it work in tandem with the original golden egg. Yeah. So I would would try and try and link the two things together and put them in the same book. I've never been in the situation where I've been working on one novel and had an idea for more than the next one ahead. Really? I've I've never got anything in the bank. That's unusual. I've got the novel I'm writing and the novel I want to write after that and beyond that is just a big black hole. How interesting. (laughs) So you're almost flying by the seat of your pants but after 19 or 20 novels clearly it's working. Well this is the most wonderful thing about being a seasoned writer is just all the things that used to freak me out about the way I work and the way my books happen that used to make me think I was doing everything wrong and that I was on the edge of disaster constantly I now know is is nothing of the sort it's just how I write books that people like reading so I now embrace it all I embrace the fact that I've only got one idea and I don't freak out and think I should have a notebook full of ideas I embrace the fact that I don't plan my novels um, and that I've got no notebook full of chapter plans and post-it notes and whiteboards and what have you and I just think this is how I write the books that I write and people like the books that I write so yes I've come very much into myself as a writer over the past few years well, let's get started then. Let's hear your first offcut. Can you tell us what it's called, when you wrote it and what genre it was written for? OK, um, this clip is from The Girls, which is a novel I wrote in 2014, which was one of my first thrillers and it was not used in the final version. The afternoon grew warmer and Leo called at four o'clock to say he was leaving work early. The pale gold orb of the sun arced slowly across the sky above the garden, sparking off window panes now and then, and a sweet breeze riffled the leaves of the ancient trees that grew in a line from east to west. Adele opened the packaging of the huge tent that Leo had ordered on the recommendation of a friend who was a veteran of family festivals. She stared blindly for a while at the instructions. A job for Leo and the boys, she decided. She found Sophia's sun hat and a newspaper, filled a glass with water, tucked her phone into her jeans pocket, hooked Sophia onto her hip and headed into the garden. It was busier now that the other schools had broken up. She saw Henry and George with Dylan and Violet. The boys were on their bikes. Violet was on what looked like brand new roller skates, her elbows and knees bound with strapped-on padding. Dylan was still in his uniform, the grey and black of the private boys' school at the top of the hill, the one where the celebrities sent their sons. He flicked his dirty chestnut fringe out of his face and laughed scathingly at something Henry had said. He was only two and a half years older than Henry, but since he'd started secondary school, he'd been making a concerted issue of his age advantage. Adele suspected their friendship, which had started when Henry was the same age as Sophia was now, was in its dying days. This summer, she mused, would be a challenging one for the boys. Why was this not included in the book? Um, (laughs) It's it's so hilarious. So, gosh, that's just bizarre listening to that because everything about that changed apart from the setting. I started writing Adele Mm -hmm. as the mother of two sons and a baby girl who live on a communal garden, which is based on the communal garden I live on, which I'm actually looking at now as I talk to you, the line of trees growing from east to west. And it was when I was still in that phase of not trusting my instincts and sort of wrong footing myself a lot while I was writing, which is how I often used to write of just sort of making corrections as I went along rather than plowing forwards. And I just wasn't getting along with Adele as a, as this mother. And I decided that I can't remember the precise moment of this happening, but I decided that I would like her to be not a... uh, She goes on in that unpublished scene to go and... I think she goes to school or something at some other point and she's outside the playground and she was going to be a classic middle-class North London playground mum. And I just thought, 
I don't want to write about a North London playground mum. I've done those and everybody's done those. So I decided that she would have three girls and that they'd be homeschooled. And that so we would see the comings and goings on the garden from the perspective of a woman who never really left the communal garden because she taught her children at home. So yes, this was from very early on in the book. And I backpedaled very quickly to make Adele a totally different sort of mother. And I can't remember the thinking behind giving her three girls instead of two boys and a baby girl. The three girls in the ultimate version of the book were all teenagers as well. Right. So there were no babies and no small children involved. But yes, that's that's why that scene is no longer there, because none of those children are there anymore. Those children are gone. <laughs> <laughs> and it was definitely your decision. It wasn't a, an editor didn't have a read and go, mm, I'm not sure where this is going. No, this, is... this was very early on in the writing process. This was probably when I talk about my writing year being from sort of February to December, this would have been something that happened in around March, I would have thought. Does that happen a lot? You do a complete U-turn. No, it used to. It used to happen all the time. I was always questioning myself and my decisions and thinking, oh, there could be a better way of doing this. Or what about if I switched over? And and I used to do that all the time. And I don't do that anymore. I I very much commit myself to my decisions as I I'm, I'm the same in life, actually. I don't dilly dally around making decisions. I just... I go with my gut, I go with my instincts, and then I sort of metaphorically close the menu and just get on with things. And I'm the same now when I'm writing a novel. I just think, no, I wrote that for a reason. I'm not sure what reason. I'm not sure how that's going to pan out or where it's going, but I'm going to stick with it and just keep writing forwards and not write backwards. Now, considering the family dynamic plays a a very big part in most of your books, how much input do your own family have in your writing? Do you ever give them bits to read before the book's finished? Or have your daughters or husband ever suggested or requested that you make changes? (laughs) No, I cannot stress strongly enough how uninterested my family are in my work. They have zero interest. My youngest is starting to become sort of slightly tuned into the fact that I'm a successful novelist because one of her friends searched for me on TikTok and found loads of fan videos from people. Um, yes, sort How of. How cool. Yes. So uh, and and she's now quite sort of I think she's vaguely impressed that people of her age read my books and enjoy my books. Um, but in terms of what mum does. There is zero interest. Neither of my children have ever asked me about my processes, have ever expressed any interest in what I'm writing, where it's going, what it's going to be about. No. Really? Yeah, no interest They've at never all. requested that you name a character after somebody that they like or don't like? No, or... no. I tell you what they do, and this is classic, classic kid. They're like, oh, if it gets made into a movie, can I be in it? That's, <laughs> that's about it. If it gets made into a movie, then suddenly they're on board with with it but yeah. as, a, as a paper book no interest whatsoever and your husband he doesn't either have anything no, to do with it no no <laughs> I will start, I will occasionally <laughs> use him as a sounding board if if we're out having dinner and I need something to talk about um I will bring up what I'm writing about and and sort of use him as a sounding board as I say but no he's not a reader of fiction well he's not a reader of anything really um he read my first few books politely and he, he buys my um, thrillers, he downloads them on Audible and listens to them on holiday and gets to about chapter eight by the time we're on our return flight home. And that's it, really. Which is fine. I don't need them. I don't need them. No, of course you don't. They're not, they're, they're, they're not required for my writing <laughs> process or my writing journey. So it's all good. OK, then we're, let's move on to the next off gut. Can you tell us about this one, please? OK, so this is an article called Thornham, which is a village in North Norfolk and I was commissioned to write it for New Woman magazine back in May of 2005 just after my mother had died but it was never published. We braved the bitter North Sea wind as we strolled down the seafront towards the funfair and laughed so hard on the waltzers that we thought we were going to be sick. Afterwards feeling quite shaky we decided to head back to our cottage in Thornham where we reminisce for a couple of hours about all the funny things that had happened over those long childhood summers. Like the time Claire and Sasha got stuck in sinking mud out on the marshes on Thornham Harbour and came home shoeless and brown from head to foot. And the time when there were so many children to pack into so many cars after a day on the beach that James got left behind, his absence not noticed until we'd all got home. 
We talked about Darren, who picked me up at Hunstanton Fair and took me for a Bacardi and Coke, while the younger kids loitered around outside the bar, giggling because Lisa had a boyfriend. He drove me back to Thornham in a maroon TR7, which Claire and James's big sister Emma promptly reversed into a caravan. The dent was still there the following summer, long after Darren and his sports car were a distant memory. It was funny I noticed how our roles were still the same. As kids, I'd been the sensible one. Claire and Sasha had been the naughty twins, and James was the baby. I was always so gullible and felt like I was a step behind everyone else, a bit slow to get the joke. I still felt like that even now, but unlike the time my dad let all the kids sleep in his camper van one night and Sasha and Claire locked the doors and tickled me until I wet myself, I was twelve. They didn't take advantage. The following day, we're up early for breakfast at the Victoria in Holcombe, followed by a brisk walk on Holcombe Beach and a wander through the pine forest. As a child, I'd felt like the forest could swallow me whole, like I could walk forever and never get to the other end. Now it just seemed like a bunch of trees. And then, as the storm clouds gathered over the north Norfolk coast, we packed ourselves into my car and headed home in torrential rain, back to our children and jobs and the real world. My weekend in Thornham couldn't have come at a better time. Before I left, I'd believed that uncontrollable, side-splitting laughter was like snogging and midriff tops for young people. I'd convinced myself that a lot of things I didn't do anymore, like giggling, like flirting, like getting overexcited about silly things, I didn't do because I was grown up, because I was a mother, because my own mother had been ill, because real life was just too damn serious. I came back to London remembering that even though I'm a woman, I can still be a girl. And I'm going to try my hardest to keep that feeling with me until I'm a very old lady indeed. Oh, it was such a lovely piece. What happened to it? Why was that not published? Do you know what? I have no idea. Um, Yes, so this was my my mother died in uh, May 2005. And she she was only sixty one, so it was quite it was quite sort of a, a tragedy at the time. Mm. And Claire, James, and my sister Sasha, we were basically as children. We used to go to Thornham every single summer. Four families with static caravans side by side on a caravan site behind a pub in Thornham, and that's what we did every summer for six weeks. And it was, yeah, it, oh, clearly incredibly formative. And someone had the idea that in that sort of post-funeral thing that happens when someone's passed and everybody wants to come back together in their absence and sort of recreate some sort of sense of the, of, of the lost history that's died with that person, that we should return to Thornham and just spend some time there. And as you can see from that article I wrote, we had a whale of a time it was and I think you do have to do these things after the funeral I think there's something very um final and you can move on it's that sense of closure Mm. and I can't remember being commissioned to write this piece and I cannot remember why it got killed I know that New Woman magazine doesn't exist anymore Mm -hmm. it's it's defunct and no I can't remember the backstory to this at all it was fantastic actually for me to go through all my old pieces of journalism and unearth it and read it particularly with all that sort of sentiment about clinging on to girlishness and and helpless laughter and not taking life too seriously and that sense I'd had at the time of writing it that this was something I wanted to remember and take on with me into into life and I'm not sure that probably happened (laughs) because it kind of doesn't in life does it no real life intercedes eventually it does and you sort of revert to revert to normal behavior but even even though it wasn't published I'm glad I wrote it because it really does sum up that sort of kind of there's that sort of post loss euphoria that you sometimes have because when somebody dies and leaves a hole in the world the people around that hole come together in a way that's more intense yeah than it was when that person was there and that does create a, a strange sort of euphoria um, and it was nice for me to have captured it in that piece even though nobody ever got to read it but so. we just heard it now there you go it's been brought back to life yes now your mother I heard an interview you did um, your mother has a fascinating story about her upbringing can you 
tell us about that? Yeah, I mean, yes. So I was brought up with with a, a sort of story inbuilt into my DNA, the story that I heard from my mother from being a tiny child all the way through to adulthood, which was the story of my mother's childhood, which was, you know, you could you could you could make a screenplay out of it. So she was born in India in 1944 to an Anglo-Indian father and a Scottish mother. And when she was four years old, the family decided they were going to emigrate from India to the UK, where they had a lot of family. And my grandmother, my Scottish grandmother, got on a boat, as you did in those days, with her twin baby boys and left my grandfather and my mother in India. And they were supposed to be joining her a few weeks later. I think my grandfather had some affairs to to tidy up before he could leave the country. And instead of tidying up his affairs, he actually... Um, reunited with a, his childhood sweetheart and yeah and made a new life with her uh this affected my mother very very badly as you can imagine she was yeah. four years old she stopped eating and she got rickets <gasps> and you know back in these sort of really sort of post-victorian days the way that people dealt with unhappy children was just sort of guaranteed to make them even unhappier they sent my mother off to a boarding school up in the up in the hills uh, in, in a town called Ninetel for for three terms in a boarding school full of teenage girls and uh, this four-year-old child oh no yeah so and when by the time she came back to Lucknow which is where her father and her, his new wife were living they were married and uh, a baby sister came along not long afterwards and she was not allowed to talk about her mother she was made to call this new woman her mother she wasn't allowed to cry about her mother and then she watched her father and her stepmother love the new baby physically in a way that they'd never loved her physically she got all the hugs and kisses and my mother was not read bedtime stories as she tells as she told the story to us yeah anyway if when she was 10 years old the family finally left india this was around the time of partition and they were in karachi at that point and came to the uk but they settled unlike my grandmother who settled in the midlands they settled in north london my mother met my father, my father, my mother had me. And then when she was pregnant with my little sister, this man appeared at her front gate and said, are you Kay? And my mother said, yes. He said, I'm Brian. I'm your baby brother. I've been looking for you for years. Oh so he, he was only 18 at the time. And he'd been looking for her ever since he was old enough to look for her. And he'd finally tracked her down. I don't know how he did it. And yeah, so he came back into her life, which meant that also my mother's mother came back into her life. And yes, so quite a tragic and extraordinary story. Unfortunately, it wasn't very healing for my mother. I was about to say, was there no happy? It sounded like there needed to be a yeah, happy ending. It, yeah, the happy ending was my mother's relationship with Brian. They were two peas in a pod. They had adored each other but my mother never really bonded with her birth mother she never really had that closure with her the mother was very damaged as you can imagine as you can imagine you would be if you'd gone halfway across the world with two baby boys expecting your husband to catch up with you with your baby girl she'd already lost one child at a year at a year old so she she'd gone through the grief of losing a child and then she'd lost her daughter as well and her husband so she's a very damaged person she didn't really have a lot to give was she alive did you meet her oh yeah oh yeah she no she she in fact my mum and dad went on holiday once and she came and looked after us for a week in our house we used to go up to the midlands a lot and spend time with her she was an amazing cook she cooked indian food she was very indian because she'd been born in india herself even though she was scottish uh, yeah no so she was a big part of our lives but she was quite a cold cold unknowable person really but yes so that was the story of my mother and you've never been tempted to do anything with that story at all oh yeah that's a really good question that's a really good question I don't know. It's not my style, is it? It's not the sort of thing I write about, but... It's the starting point of something. It's the starting point of something, yes. I mean, as with, uh, you know, I, I had a, a very traumatic early marriage and I always knew I wanted to write about it, but I never found the right moment to write about it until I found it. And I, I put it into, I think, my fifth novel. And maybe that will happen with my mother's story. Maybe I'll be writing something and I'll think, this is it. I found the place for it. This can be it. We'll see. We'll see. I haven't found that moment yet. 
All right, let's uh, let's find out about your next offcut. Can you tell us what it's called and where it comes from? Okay, so this is a deleted scene from my very first novel, Ralph's Party, which I started writing when I was 26 years old back in the 90s and was published, in fact, in 1999. 1st of January, 1986. 276 days till UCL. I must be the only 18-year-old in the country waking up this morning without a hangover. Another lovely New Year's Eve with Mother, Lulu and Alex watching other people enjoying themselves on the television and feeling like I always feel, on the outside. Oh God, I can't wait till October. I can't believe this year has finally arrived. Ten months to go before I get away from bloody Mother and this miserable little bloody hovel. Mother's downstairs now, taking down all the Christmas decorations, i.e. the bits of holly she stole off the tree outside the Rowans. Without the berries, of course. I'm surprised she can bear to have them up even for eight days. I can tell it makes her all edgy. She's so relieved after they come down. I'm listening to John Peel's Festive 50 at the moment. I wonder what'll be number one. Atmosphere by Joy Division again, no doubt. He's playing Teenage Kicks by The Undertones at the moment and it's making me want to cry. I've only got two years left of being a teenager and I've yet to have one single kick. I wonder what it feels like. I wonder if I'll lose my virginity this year. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. It's weird and so exciting to think that there's a boy out there somewhere who I've never met and I'm going to fall in love with him and lose my virginity to him. I wonder what he's doing right now. Just think, in ten months I'll be away from bloody miserable bloody barracks and horrible bloody mother and I'll be living in a wonderful sunny flat in London, maybe in a mansion block with a balcony and I'll be able to make friends and wear makeup and pretty clothes and grow my hair and drink beer and eat Chinese food whenever I want. And when it's Christmas I'll buy up the whole Christmas bloody decoration department in Woolworths and you won't be able to move in my flat for baubles and tinsel and fairy lights and I'll invite my boyfriend round and we'll drink cold lager and I'll get teenage kicks right through the night. 267 days to go, 8th of February, 1986. Oh, God! I don't know what to do! Justin Jones asked me out to the Valentine's disco! Justin Jones! Oh, you should have seen Melanie Albright's face. He said he didn't know why he fancied me, but he did. He said I had awful hair and wore awful clothes, but there was something about me that he couldn't quite put his finger on. Get that! I've got something about me! That sounds a hell of a lot easier than having to make an effort to be fancied like Melanie Bloody Albright with her huge bloody tits popping out of her deliberately too tight shirt. I could just walk about with my spastic hair and my nylon clothes and sensible shoes and have something about me. I am very happy with this newfound knowledge. There was no point in saying yes, of course. I was honest with him. I just told him my mother was a witch and a cow and wouldn't let me go because then I might enjoy myself and that's the last thing she'd ever want for me. He told me he'd bring a ladder and kidnap me from my room. Very romantic idea, but too rebellious by half. I explained to him that I am not a rebelling type. I feel sad now. I hate my mother. 238 days to go. Oh, no. <laughs> awful, awful use of politically incorrect language in the but middle of that. But it was written oh. in 1997 when it, we were all saying things like that. Yes. And it wasn't published. No, no. But no. even if it had been, it wouldn't be the end of the world because it was colloquial. That's what it is, isn't it? Yes, yes. And also, she was a teenage girl writing in a diary. And I can imagine that teenage girls probably even now are not that politically correct when they're writing in their diaries. Yes. Yes. But anyway. The, so this is marvellous. Ralph's Party. I remember when that came out. I loved it. <laughs> but, so this, though, the note that accompanied this uh, script was, it has a load of diary entries written for Jem's diary that you've completely forgotten about. Yeah. How do you completely forget about something like this? That's quite a quite a big chunk of text. And I uh, still have zero recollection of having written any of that. Oh. So there's there's a storyline that runs through it where um so Jem moves into a flat share with these two guys called Ralph and Smith. And Ralph doesn't have a job, so he's at home all day and he's slightly um he's got a big crush on Jem and he goes into her room while she's at work and reads her diaries because he wants to get to know her, but he doesn't know how to approach her because he's a bit hopeless. And clearly at some point, I thought it'd be a really good idea if if the reader could see what Ralph was reading in Jem's diaries. And I wrote these entries, which meant that I had to create this whole backstory for Jem 
mm-hmm. about this awful mother she had, horrible and, and living in a barracks and, and wearing horrible shoes and nobody fancying her and not being allowed out and, and no Christmas decorations. And I, I do not remember thinking, <laughs> writing, imagining any of those things at all. It's absolutely extraordinary to me. So yes, obviously I had to do an awful, I don't didn't just have these things to hand when I was asked to find off cuts. Mm-hmm. I had to do some deep, dark ferreting around in the sort of bowels of my, of my word documents. Um, and this is something that took me more by surprise than anything, I think, ah. um, finding these, these um, dead diary entries for Jem. But it's also interesting to me that I have no recollection of doing it and no recollection <laughs> of cutting them out, at which point in the, I think it must have been way, way, way early on into the writing process I took those out. I can imagine my thinking would have been along the lines of this is going to take up too much room. So again, it would be your decision, not an editorial one. Oh, absolutely. Example. Yeah. No, these were not taken out by an editor. These were very much taken out by me. Now, this is your first book. And what I want to know is, I mean, obviously, everyone has a sort of, I wrote the first book and it got published. And from then on, I became a writer. But who were you before you wrote your first book? Were you actually a writer of any description? Uh, No, see, this is I am. I am. I'm hoping a walking inspiration for people who are not a writer of any description who would like to be a writer because I was the absolute... Uh, polar polar opposite of a writer. I what guess. is the polar opposite of um, a writer? Well, I actually I don't know. I don't know. Polar opposite. That's a really good question. What is a polar? No. Let's rephrase that. I was not in a position in my life that anybody would have looked at me and thought, "Oh, I bet she's going to go off and write a novel." So it wasn't at school. You had no particular writing talents at school. Yeah. No. I was. Oh, yeah. No. I was very good at writing at school. I wasn't very good at anything else at all. I was very very average child. Average to bad at most things, but really exceptionally good at writing. But by, at the point at which I started writing this in 1996, I hadn't written anything for, well, as since I was a child. What was your job? What were you doing for work? So at the actual point that I started writing Ralph's Party, which was in October 1996, and I remember that because we'd, I'd had the conversation with a friend on um, holiday uh, one of us was a teacher, so we had to go on holiday during the school half term, even though none of us had children. So that's how I know it was October. And somebody else on that holiday had made me a bet to write a book because I'd just read High Fidelity by Nick Hornby and was feeling kind of inspired, kind of thinking that I'd like to write a novel. There's a long backstory. It wasn't quite as clean cut as that. that I suddenly from out of the blue decided I want to write a novel. There's an awful lot of other stuff behind that. So when I got back from that holiday and started writing it, I had actually been made redundant. I'd been working as a marketing, a PA to the marketing director of Thomas Pink, the shirt makers in German Street in Mayfair. That was the precise job that I was doing. So I had been working in an office behind the Thomas Pink shop in German Street for the marketing director as a secretary. And... I had just lost my job before we went on this holiday, this life-changing holiday where I had this life-changing conversation with my friend. And before I'd been on that holiday and had that life-changing conversation, while I was still a secretary, if you had asked me, what what do you think you're going to end up doing? I would have been thinking of pay rises and promotions. That's why, that, that was where my head was at. Right. I wasn't living in a world where I thought that I was going to change my life or that I was going to take a risk or that I was going to do something brave. It wasn't a secret dream, for example. It wasn't a secret dream. It was something that I just, I knew I was good at writing, but I also thought that I didn't have any right to write a book. I thought I was young and a flippity gibbet and hadn't had any life experience and bad things hadn't happened to me. And uh, yeah, I just, I I thought that particularly back then in the 90s, there weren't really any young female writers. Mm. Any books I read by women were middle-aged women, postmenopausal women on the whole. So it wasn't something that I thought as a, and also as a as a human being who had not even been to university, didn't even have a degree or any A levels. I certainly didn't think that I had the right to even think about writing a book. So, yeah, it was only losing that job at that pivotal moment in my life, losing that job. And I cried. I cried for 24 hours after I lost that job because I loved it so much. 
But that was what forced the conversation that I had with the friend on that holiday, which led to me shaking hands with her and saying, OK, I'll give it a bash. I'll write three chapters. Um, and those were the three chapters of Ralph's party. But it was an absolute sliding doors moment. It really was a sliding doors moment. It wasn't something that was inevitable and that was going to happen anyway at all. It was something life presented me with a, a moment which I could grab hold of or ignore and I grabbed hold of it thank God and made it happen and uh, here I am. What a fantastic story. Yes it is fantastic. Right well (laughs) let's move on to your next off cut what's this one? Right so this was from my I think it's one of my middle novels The Truth About Melody Brown which I wrote in 2008 and I can't actually remember what it is so I'm quite excited to hear it. It smelled different today. The corridors smelled of sickly, pine-scented disinfectant, and the classrooms smelled of chalk dust and wood polish, even though the floor was linoleum and the whiteboard employed markers. And the children seemed taller, taller, bigger, and somehow more ominous. But the strangest thing of all was that all day long she'd had this worrying sense of watching her back, as if someone was about to pounce on her. And worse than that, A voice inside her head, but somehow everywhere whispering her name. Melody. 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 Wherever she went, it was a child's voice in as much as it was a voice at all, more like interference, but harsher, deeper, without the softness of a child's voice. Melody found herself turning abruptly to locate the source of the name-calling at several points throughout the day, and each time she turned to face a blank wall or an empty corridor, Her heart raced and her hackles rose. I suspect that the reading we gave of this might be a little bit more sinister than the actual story in the Melody. (laughs) Melody. Whoa, that was spooky. Well, I, th- I, thought we'd, I thought we'd go for a change of a change of tone there because uh, yeah, definitely there, there are certainly creepy overtones or undertones in that clip. How yeah. accurate is that? Well, first of all, what happened? Why is it not in the book? That's a really good question. So Melody Brown is um, a dinner lady. At She's a single mother to a 17-year-old son and is a dinner lady at the primary school that he went to that she, start, she took the job because it worked in terms of being a single mother. And she's still working at the primary school that he went to, even though he's nearly an adult. And Melody Brown has forgotten she experienced a house fire when she was eight years old and has forgotten everything that happened in the first eight years of her life and she's accepted the fact that she doesn't remember the first eight years of her life and then at the beginning of the book somebody takes her on a date to um which were very fashionable back in the noughties a a live hypnotist show yeah and she is hypnotized on stage and after this event she keeps getting strange flashbacks little fragments of things vignettes Mm -hmm. moments that she doesn't recognize but which she knows intrinsically are to do with her and her childhood so the book the truth about melody brown is about her voyage of discovery she follows these little clues like breadcrumbs she sees for example one of the flashbacks she sees is of a house by the seaside with a balcony that looks like a smiling face and she locates this house and it's in broad stairs um, on the kent coast and Anyway, slowly, chapter by chapter, she pieces together the truth about her childhood and about who she really is. But the whole book is set in the summer holidays. But clearly, at some point, I had written a scene or I had changed the timeline somehow because this is clearly Melody going back to work at the beginning of term. At the moment, the book finishes in in July uh, on her son's 18th birthday, which is at the end of July. So, yeah, I at some point clearly decided that I didn't want it. I can't remember what, again, what mental shenanigans I was I was processing to make that decision to truncate the storyline so that it didn't go over the the summer holidays and into the new term. But yes, yeah, so that scary stuff in that clip is is merely the fact that Melody can feel that her her memory has been infiltrated somehow and she's feeling quite freaked out about it. Um so it isn't it sounds like from that uh, dramatic retelling 
uh, that it might be a horror or a ghost sort of thing. It's not, it's an, it's neither of those. It is very much just she's feeling haunted, these encroaching memories. This is actually your seventh novel. Yeah. And you have, uh, as has been noted by many people, you've changed from the Ralph's party, I think you called it, was it Flatmates and Curry kind of uh, book? Yes. And obviously, as yeah. uh, the books have gradually got darker. And I was trying to work out when the actual change occurred. Now, I read an interview that you said it was the third wife in 2014 that defined your change of style. Yes. But your publisher appears to disagree with you because I'm looking at the book covers. Going, Hold on a second. Melody Brown is the book where the, the font changes and becomes a bit more stark, although the background isn't quite scary. And then after that, they're quite uh, frothy, the, the earlier books. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> The images get darker, the font gets bigger. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's actually a, a quite a dull technical reason for that, oh. is that the truth about Melody Brown was the first book published by Random House when I moved from Penguin to Random House. Ah. Um, and they have just done a backlist rejecting exercise. So they have rejected everything that they have published for me, which is the truth about Melody Brown onwards. Um, but I was, this was a point at which I started giving my publishers books to publish that weren't chiclet. And I think. I kind of, I found they found it quite challenging to know what to do with me over the, the next few books from The Truth About Melody Brown onwards until The Third Wife, which is when I finally killed someone. <laughs> so, that, so then there was just like, okay. So I kind of wrote out of genre for about three or four books in the middle of my backlist. But they went well, surely, the publisher. Yeah, yeah. So The Truth About Melody Brown sold really well. And after that came After the Party, which was the um, sequel to Ralph's Party, yeah. which was a very grown-up novel about long-term love and parenthood and then after that came the making of us which was a book about anonymous sperm donor the four children that he'd sired coming together to to go to his deathbed and then after that was the house oh I, I wrote a, a historical novel called before I met you which had a historical um dual timeline set in 1919 in London then there was a house we grew up in which was a novel about a family blighted by the mother's um, obsessive compulsive hoarding disorder caused by a trauma within the family so these were books that were n n fish nor fowl like nobody was dying but nobody was falling in love with anybody mm. and so for quite that chunk of time my book sales did go down to the point where I was slightly worried about my long-term future as a novelist. Never to the point where I thought I'd have to get a job, um, but certainly to the point where I just thought, if this carries on, I'm, I may have to rethink my, my long-term plans. And yes, very difficult to publish a non-genre book for publishers. Is that why you, when you got The Third Wife started, did you make a conscious decision to go, right, I'm now going to make things a bit no. easier for my publishers? No, absolutely not. Again, very much just, it was a very instinctive thing. I was actually halfway through writing The Third Wife and The Third Wife was going to be yet another out of genre book about a man who has clearly been married three times and it was just going to be a study of the impact that having a father who keeps going off with other women and having children with other women, the impact that, that has on the families that are left behind and all those interesting interdynamics between ex-wives and new wives, young wives, old wives, mm. teenage children, babies, all that sort of interesting stuff that happens in families like that. So that's what I was going to write about. And I got halfway through and just genuinely thought, I am bored. <laughs> I'm bored. This is boring me. And if it's boring me, then it's going to bore the reader. And I just thought I need something really exciting to happen. So I killed someone. <laughs> and in fact, if you read The Third Wife and you're expecting it to be a classic kind of domestic noir, domestic thriller, you may not get exactly what you want because it is a bit of a sort of a pig's ear in a way, because I had to sort of rework things to fit around this new, this new dead person in the middle of the book. So it's not particularly successful but as a diving board for me to then find my way into a genre which I think I should always have been writing into being completely honest and yeah to head off in the direction that I've since headed off in yeah it was oh it was the right thing to do and it's not my favorite novel of mine by any stretch but I'm so glad I wrote it because obviously 
had that novel gone out into the world and my publishers had said, hold on, this isn't a Lisa Jewell novel. You've killed someone. What's going on? Had my readers said, oh, I used to like Lisa Jewell, but then she started killing people and now I don't like her anymore. I'd have had to have pause for thought and rethink things and find another way to, to move on creatively. But neither of those things happened, which gave me carte blanche to just keep on killing people and keep... <laughs> getting darker and darker and going further and further into a place that I feel really comfortable in. Um, so, yeah, so The Truth About Melody Brown was a turning point in as much as um, it was the first novel where it, the focus wasn't a romantic relationship. Right, well, time for your next offcut. Tell us about this one. OK, so this is from my novel Watching You, which I wrote in 2017. And again, it's something that I cut out myself. He was wearing a sky-blue shirt and midnight blue trousers, a thin blue and grey striped tie. The jacket that made a suit with the trousers was hung haphazardly over the back of a chair around a board table. In the waste paper bin to the left of his desk was the cling film wrapping of a homemade sandwich and a crushed empty packet of chilli-flavoured rice cakes. Paperwork in piles of varying sizes covered the surface of his desk. A hank of his hair hung distractingly over his forehead. I'm really well, she replied. Excellent. His eyes followed a triangle from her left eye to her right to her mouth and back again. He pulled himself back, smoothed down his tie. Excellent, he repeated. Everyone being nice to you? Of course. Good. And now you're off to the trips? I am. Sharon's coming with me. Sharon was the attendance officer. She had just gone part-time and had no problem sharing her remit with Joey. So she's briefed you? Yes, fully. Suicide father, mental health mother, decreasing attendance. Tom leaned forward and touched a folder on his desk. Awful. Just awful. Ethan, such a lovely boy, was on course for a full set of GCSEs. Too late for that now, I suspect. But maybe not too late to get at least five reasonably good ones. Set him off on the right footing. He looked up from the folder and smiled at her. It was a slow, serious smile. She felt a thud of yearning in the pit of her stomach, then a prickle of fear. Everything felt so onerous. Her job, her responsibility to these children, her need to please Tom, her terrible, overwhelming crush. Because it was now. It was fully realised and undeniable. Her whole being had been reduced over the last few weeks to a hard, inflexible rock of wanting. Wanting to see him, mainly from a distance, so she could hold the pleasure quietly inside her but wanting these face-to-face -face encounters too, wanting to be able to smell him, to study the creases in his shirts, the creases in his face, the hairs on his wrists, the pale gold band on his ring finger that he twirled and twisted as though it might open a portal to another dimension. Do you remember why this didn't make the story? Oh, yes, so... Joey is a, and in fact, in this, this is an interesting thing. Joey, in the original version of the book, was 36 and had just come back from 10 years working the sort of the hospitality scene in Ibiza, doing parties and what have you, with a much younger boyfriend, 10 years younger than her, and moved in with her twin brother. And she finds that her brother is living next door to the head teacher of the local big local comprehensive school and he's called Tom Fitzwilliam and she immediately finds herself attracted to him in a quite unexpected way and yeah so clearly as you can hear in that clip she has a, a massive crush on him before she went off to Ibiza in my original version she had done a degree in social work and then run off to Ibiza. And in the original version, she finds herself talking to Tom Fitzwilliam and he offers her a job at his school working with um, children uh, who have got social problems. It's actually based on a, a friend of mine in real life who has that exact job. So I, I, I got her. I remember I went out for... That's interesting. I've just had a memory come back to me. I, I took her out for a coffee to pick her brain because I knew I was going to be writing about her having this job. So I got all this, <laughs> all this information. And yeah, so she goes to work at Tom Fitzwilliam's school. And at some point, I clearly decided that that was absolutely the wrong path for, the, for Joey to take and for the storyline to take. And I went backwards and having said that I don't write backwards here I am 
here I am. And this is only like four novels ago. So I'm misremembering my own past here, like doing the old rose tinted spectacles. Like, oh, I'm such a great writer these days. I never have to change anything. Clearly here, I absolutely changed tack quite dramatically and removed Joey from Tom's school and put her back in the house next door and have it had her just watching him once more from a distance and not being a part of his life. Right. So yes, a little lost moment of what might have been had Tom Fitzwilliam offered her a job working at his school. Would that have changed the plot very much, do you think? Oh, it really would have changed the plot. The whole plot ultimately hinges on the distance between her and Tom Fitzwilliam and the fact that she does only get to see him from a distance and fantasise about him and make up stories about about him and use his use him as some sort of emotional crutch to get through the sort of the feelings that she has of inadequacy and and being lost in the world Mm. so had she been face to face with him every day that would have taken all that tension out of the story and all that sort of did you have any idea where it might have gone no I never have any no 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 I never plan anything or know where anything's going I have the one thing it's on my screen and it just grows a thousand words a day And that's what it is. That's all that exists is my brain and my fingers and this thing on the screen that is just for me, it's words on a screen. I don't have that sense of being sort of absorbed into my own imaginary world and the world around me doesn't exist. I'm very, very aware of the world that I'm in. I'm very aware of the biscuit tin. I'm very aware of jobs that I need to do. I'm very aware of the fact that i want to go up and put some put some warmer socks on because my feet are cold I'm very aware of the fact that I can hear my husband coming upstairs and he's going to want to talk to me and yeah all of these things all of these things I am aware of yeah so what what I do feels very very mechanical almost when I'm doing it it's just a screen fingertips keyboard words you make it sound very unenjoyable though is there no delight it there's very little delight the delight comes afterwards the delight comes when it's finished and the delight comes when I can give it to my editor and she tells me how to make it better and then I can make it better and then people read it and say they've loved it and but actually writing it's very rarely delightful it's very rarely delightful there are moments where I just things something clicks into place and it feels a little bit like magic and then I get a moment of thinking wow you know there is something else going on here beyond just my fingertips and the keyboard there's something else at play here um but mostly it does feel like a mechanical i'm just watching the word count going up i'm just (laughs) selecting text and 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 clicking and looking at the bottom of the screen to see how many words is in the thing that i've just written and it's like 800 words and i think okay let's see if i can get another 200 words out that's what it feels like wow yeah well i admire your pragmatism Okay, we've come to your final offcut now. So, can you tell us about this one, please? Wow, this is from The Night She Disappeared, which I only finished writing in December 2020. So, uh, hopefully, I should remember very, very, very clearly why this didn't make the final cut um, because, yeah, this was uh, just from last year. Thomas grabs her by her throat again and pulls her under the water again. Then he disappears too. And for a second they're an amorphous, LED-lit, writhing mass at the bottom of the pool. And there is nobody here to help. And someone is going to die if they keep doing this. And so for the second time that night, Tallulah takes off her shorts and jumps feet first into the pool. Her hands find Thomas's hands around Scarlet's throat and try to unpeel them. But she feels Thomas's foot hard just above her groin and recoils. She starts to feel her breath run out. She didn't take enough in when she jumped, and she shoots to the surface of the pool, gasping for air. Help! she calls out into the black night, her voice fighting hard against the pounding music. Help! But nobody comes. Nobody is here. She goes under the water again, and feels that Scarlet is starting to lose her fight, that she is becoming soft and pliant, and she realises that Scarlet is drowning. She throws herself bodily between Thomas and Scarlet, and finally his hands come away from her throat, and all three of them emerge once more from the water, all choking, all gasping and coughing. Scarlet tries to make it to the side of the pool, but Thomas grabs her by her legs and tries to pull her under again. This time she manages to kick him away and swim quickly away from him, but she seems to have winded him, and he's curled up at the bottom of the pool, and seeing him there in a pathetic fetal ball, Tallulah feels a terrible shadow of repressed rage pass over her, blank fury at this boy who she used to love, this boy who ignored her throughout her pregnancy because he didn't think her baby was his, 
This boy who wants her to stay small and compressed and stick her in a box on the side of an A-road. This boy who has just tried to take the life of the girl she loves. And she gulps in a big lungful of air and pushes herself to the bottom of the pool and sits on Thomas's head. He struggles against the weight of her and is about to push her off when Scarlet appears by her side. They exchange a look through the pinky-blue haze of the disco-lit water, and then Scarlet takes Thomas's arms and pins them down against the bottom of the pool. And as the lights change from pink to orange to green to red, the fight slowly leaves Thomas's body. Oh, my God! <laughs> Why didn't you put that in? That was great! Oh! Right. Well, here you go. Here you go. Well, here's one little interesting factoid about that. So Tallulah's boyfriend throughout my whole first draft was called Thomas. And then I gave it to my editor and she said, Thomas, Thomas just sounds like a nice boy. He doesn't sound like a, you know, an evil boy. (laughs) Um, Can you not give him a slightly harder name? So I changed his name to Zach. So he's in the in the final book. He's called Zach, not Thomas. Right. And this was a perfect example of what happens when you don't plan. And I knew, I had assumed, all I knew from the beginning was that Thomas and Tallulah, and now obviously Zach and Tallulah, go to a pool party at a mansion in the middle of the countryside and they never come home. Until I got to the closing chapters, I still was, I had no idea whether they were dead, whether they were alive, whether one of them was dead, the other one wasn't, whether who'd killed who. I had no idea. The only thing I could assume was that because they'd been at a pool party, a bad thing happened in the pool. So I was just geared towards making something bad happen in the pool. And gosh, that's shocking. She sits on his head. I mean, that's really quite, quite shocking. Mm. But when I got to writing that scene, I suddenly went into a tailspin of realising how many loose threads this was going to leave. Such as? Oh, like the sort of the um, DNA evidence of what would they do with Thomas's body? How would they manage to get it from the pool? Where would they hide it? How would nobody see? There were still other, in that draft, there were still other people around. So there'd have been more people complicit in what had happened because there would have been witnesses to it. It also meant that... Tallulah had killed Thomas, which uh, at that point I still wasn't entirely sure was the right outcome. I wasn't because I didn't know how the book was going to end. I felt uncomfortable with being so sure at that point that it was Tallulah. I maybe at that point I was thinking they could like pass it off as an accident. I suppose that's what I was thinking. Why, if that had been the case, if he had drowned and they had allowed him to drown at the bottom of the pool, call an ambulance, say, we we just found him there. You know, there were so many things that a reader would read and think, well, why didn't they just do that? Or why didn't they just do the other? Or it left just too many questions yeah. and vagueness about it. And I just thought this is not, it's, it's, having listened to it just now, it's a great scene. It's a really great scene, but I just, it wasn't going to work. It didn't do what I needed it to do so I sort of pressed the rewind button on it got them all back out the pool (laughs) (laughs) and then I got them back in the pool but I let I let the narrative take a different direction just to see if there was it's interesting actually you can almost visualize it in your mind as a video with a rewind button I was as you were saying it, and you press it and you go backwards and he's alive again they're outside the pool they're all alive they're all about to get in the pool and but something bad is going to happen but I just knew that the bad thing was going to happen but it wasn't going to be that Thomas stroke Zach drowns in the pool or is drowned in the pool right well we've come to the end of the show so I've got one final question for you which is particularly of interest to me actually because apart from the unpublished article about Thornham every piece we've heard has been from a published work where it's just that particular clip that didn't make the final cut we haven't heard anything from a rejected or an unfinished project Um, normally we have quite a few of those is that because you don't have any yes really I have no unpublished work. Every single book, I've beaten it into shape somehow. Every single book that I started, I have finished. 
So you don't waste a single bit of your output. You you make sure everything gets used. Yes, I don't. It's 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 the investment of my time. I find it really painful to think I've invested six months of my life into this and I can't just abandon it. I'm somehow going to make it work, which is what happened with the third wife. I could have abandoned it, but I chose to just keep thrashing it until it until it made itself work. That is unbelievably impressive. That nothing defeats you. Yeah. At no point do you go, ah, oh, I'll come back to this later. Or No. Or, more to the point, nobody's ever gone, nah, not good enough. <laughs> no, that hasn't happened either. Uh, finding some wood to touch here. There you go. <laughs> I'm touching the wood. No, that hasn't happened either. Oh, maybe it would have been more fun if I'd if I'd introduced some projects that didn't ever come to the light of day. But well, if there aren't any, then it doesn't yeah, matter. There you no. go. <laughs> well, that is now the end of the show. How was it for you? Oh, loved it. Absolutely loved it. And the, the acting was absolutely superb. Really, really spine tinglingly good. I enjoyed listening to my own words being spoken to me, strangely. You must hear that quite a lot. Obviously, all your books are audiobooks, I imagine. I don't listen to them. I deliberately don't listen to them because I, I feel like it will make me uncomfortable. But now I'm wondering if I should. Yeah. Well, they're, very, they're very good. You're, you're a very good writer. So, yes, maybe you should. Um, right, so that's it, really. Thank you, Lisa Jewell, for sharing the contents of your offcut straw with us. Oh, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed every minute. The Offcut Straw was devised and presented by me, Laura Shavin, with special thanks to this week's guest, Lisa Jewell. The Offcuts were performed by Beth Chalmers, Christopher Kent and Rachel Atkins, and the music was by me. For more details about this episode, visit offcutstraw.com and please subscribe, rate and review us. It helps to grow our audience so we can keep making the show. Thanks for listening.